Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Hamish Gordon is the founder and managing director of The Driver's Tipple, an exciting premium brand of non-alcoholic drink containing all the flavours of a traditional London dry gin, just without the alcohol. Having spent 30 years as a racing driver, he is ideally placed to deliver a drinks brand to designated drivers who wish to enjoy an uncompromising drink without the effects of alcohol. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Hamish Gordon, welcome to the Astrology Podcast. Great, as always, to have you as my guest. My thanks for your uh, insight and attendance today. We're great, really looking forward to uh, to speaking with you. But before we get into, I guess, uh, the career and uh, more recent experiences around the driver's tipple, which uh, many I know will be fascinated to hear more about, I'm interested to start with the early days and uh, a little bit around kind of childhood, schooling, all those sorts of good things. So tell us, what uh, what was childhood like for you? Well, well, thank you for having me. It's it's fantastic to be here. Um, and uh, it was childhood. Uh, it's quite quite a good sort of quintessentially English sort of upbringing, I suppose. My father was been in the army, and then sort of worked in the in the city. Uh, I went to prep school. I was very very lucky to have gone to a really good school in in Tunbridge Wells, and uh, and I, I stayed in in that area until I was sort of 18 and then moved to London. So I had a sort of nice Southern England upbringing, if you like, which was great, you know, and I and I am very, very lucky that set me up for life. It taught me an, an awful lot. I th- don't think I'd say we were overprivileged, but we were, you know, sort of comfortable. And it taught me sort of values that I very much used in Driver's Tipple. Um, it certainly taught me how to work. You know, I was I, I wasn't just left to, uh, to to go to school and enjoy myself. I had to, had to work, and I used to work on farms. And you know, I, I my first job in a, in a shop selling at the age of sixteen was was fantastic. I absolutely loved that. And in the summer holidays, I'd go and work for a publishing company and sell um, advertising. So it was all commercially driven sort of things. And and when I was at school, this will, this will make you laugh. I used to, I used to run the the school tuck shop from the age of sixteen for a year or so. And I loved that. And it was meeting people and it was getting involved in, in business. And I think that's where I got my sort of entrepreneurial flair from, or certainly it, it satisfied that, that need to, to have some sort of business, you know, create my own little world or certainly something that I, was, I could be proud of. I think that's, that, was, that was what I was looking for. And that's where the, the, the business ideas came from. If you look at those, those sort of teen years, if you like, or even earlier childhood days, in terms of figures that you looked up to, I always think it's sort of the uh, the posters on the wall, if you like, yeah. the heroes and the figures that really uh, lit you up as a child. Who who would they have been typically? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I, I suppose I had a split in the fact that I was always very, very keen, or mad keen on cars, and uh, hence where the, the motor racing came from. So I had people like Jim Clark, Jackie Stewart, Nigel Mansell, people like that, that I very much looked up to. Probably Nigel Mansell and Jim Clark the most. And But I also had people 
that I would follow like the Bransons of, of this world that, that were doing things in, in business uh, because that really interested me. And I, and I think when I got into motor racing, my interest in business really helped me with finding sponsorship and you know, creating a, a package to go, to go racing. That, that really helped me because I didn't have family that could write me a check so that I could go off and, and drive and run around in circles as fast as I could. So yes, I would, I would say that people like Richard Branson, um, any, anyone in business, but I had people that I knew personally that I wouldn't say were pinups, but, but I very much admired what they did and followed what they had done to set up their businesses and respected you know, their, their opinions. So do you remember, was there a point at which you first recalled getting an interest in, in motorsport? Well, my mother would tell you that my first word was car. Uh, so it's, it's difficult. I think right from the, the very, very early days, my father was very much into, into classic cars. Um, I was certainly very much into cars. My grandmother raced a few times in, back in the, the very early days. In fact, I've got a photograph of her driving a, an, an old Mercedes uh, round uh, Brooklands. And she used to tell me some wonderful stories of when she nearly fell out of the door, sort of over 100 miles an hour on the banking, things like that. So I think I, that's where I got my passion from for, for motorsport was, was from her stories and, uh, and from my father's love of, of classic cars. And the entire family actually love cars. Um, so I can't really pinpoint. So I, I think it must have been a genetic implementation, if you like. You know, it's, I was born with it. And, and was there a point at which you thought, actually in terms of pursuing a career mm. as a racing driver was there that sort of that eureka moment where you thought actually there might be something in this i did have a moment where i was invited to go to a kart race with a friend of mine and he was very much very keen to become a professional racing driver and and i was just interested in 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 driving and uh, he had all the caravan and all the, all the trappings and what have you he fell out of his caravan before qualifying for the race and broke his ankle and his father had paid for everything. So whether it was legal or not, helmet was shoved on my head, get in cart, drive. And I did. And I did extremely well in that race. And, and I met someone from uh, what was then the Jim Russell Racing Drivers School. He said, you know, you should come and learn how to race a car properly. And I thought about it for a, for a few months and I thought, actually, do you know what? This is a great opportunity. And I'm a strong believer in, in things don't happen without a reason you know there is no such thing as as coincidence you know um and uh and and so i did i went to the jim russell racing driver school up at donnington back in the day and i went through the courses and i learned how to drive and it, and that's where it started and, and they were very supportive of me and they very much helped me get get going so that's that's where it was, all began and, and what's the journey from you know as i understand it and you just to forgive my my limited knowledge of, of all things motorsport but you hear stories of, say, someone like a Lewis Hamilton karting at a very young age, and then there's a progression, a series of steps through which you go before ultimately you become, in that case, of clearly a Formula One driver. But what's the journey from you know driving school through to kind of your first start, if you like, your first point on a start line? Yes, you're right. Nowadays, there's a lot more support, I think, for the for drivers. We did have karting, but it was in a much, much smaller scale. When I, when I first first started, and uh, you really had to have a family who uh, were into karting and who knew all about it. Whereas now you can go and join teams, and as a youngster, and providing you can pay for it, you can start your motor racing career from from a very very young age. 
But the way I did it, sure, I did a little bit of karting. Then I went to a racing driver school. Then I started racing with the school. They would have their own races within the echelons of the school. And then, then I took the leap of going out into national motorsport and racing for a team. So Formula Ford was a good place. That's where, where most people started. Uh, and we had, when, when I was racing Formula Ford, people like uh, Jensen Button, for instance, were out, out in the pack. And that's where, where everybody cut the mustard or, or certainly found out if they had any, any talent. And then you work your way up. There's a distinct ladder, or there certainly was in those days, a distinct ladder to, to, to follow. And that's what I did. So do you remember that feeling, your very first professional race, mm. how you felt on the grid, start line, whatever, how you may want to describe it? Do you remember the, the range of emotions that you were going through? How did that feel? It was, it was quite funny because it was, it was a totally unplanned race. So my first national race, proper race, I'd had a phone call on the Friday and this was, it was at Thruxton and it was for a car company called Caterham. And uh, the, the team manager phoned me up and said, look, we've had a problem with our driver. We need someone to drive the car. Your name's come across my desk. Could you do it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And the problem was, is I couldn't get down there till the Sunday because it was really, really late notice. So I had no practice, no, no qualifying. And I had to start the race from the back of the grid. And the team manager said to me, look, you haven't driven one of these before. Just for crying out loud, don't try and do anything clever. Don't be a hero you will gain some places by the by the end of the second, third corner. And so sure enough, I did as I was told. And I think I gained nine places in the first three corners of the lap. And I was laughing to myself all the way again, this is going to be easy. And uh, and sure enough, you know, I, 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 after the first lap, I worked my way through and I th- finished fourth in my first national race, which was fantastic on a grid of, I think it was 26 cars. It was just so much fun. And, and I think that's, that's what was going through my head was just enjoy it. I, I, don't, I didn't put any pressure on myself. Just enjoy it. If it had been a single seater, I think it might have been a completely different thing. I think I would have felt the pressure because that's more sort of Formula One focused and that's, that's your career. But I think it did me a lot of good because it threw me out into the pack, brought me down a peg or two, if, if you like, and just made me go and race for the fun of it. And, uh, and that did, did me a lot of good because I started to enjoy my driving after that. And, and that's always been the main point is, is enjoy it. And business as well. I love driver's tipple. And sure, there are lots of painful moments in, in everything uh, that you do. But if you enjoy it, it just makes it so much more worthwhile than it just being a, a career ladder. Does that make, make sense? Absolutely. Did you, you, that sort of competitive instinct that I think naturally you would have exhibited as a consequence yeah. of that that racing experience but i think also has a part to play in business we'll come on to that but that whole debate around kind of nature nurture did you have those sort of competitive instincts and traits very obviously growing up were you always kind of you know i, th- I think always wanted to get first in the race kind of thing i had i had quite a demanding father and uh, i was always expected to he would always say to me do the best that you can and I can't expect you to do any more, but but woe betide if you come in with rubbish grades. And I think from my own self esteem, I, I I would I would get very competitive in that I want I wanted to be as far up the 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 grades if you like against my contemporaries. And certainly when I when I started working, I, I I wanted to earn more commission than the people that I was working with, and I wanted to beat what what they were doing. So yes, I think I was. 
it was definitely a natural instinct to be to be competitive because that was that was the drive you weren't out there just to to, to be one of the numbers you know you you aren't, aren't part of the the cannon fodder if you like you know you had to be a leader you had I had to be competitive and and that's always been yeah a good a good driving force and and what about the business challenges around mm. racing driving to which you alluded from the get go here well, you know you talk about raising sponsorship and creating that kind of you know you've, there's a whole business around it which i think would people appreciate to the extent that actually you know you look at you know we, we see obviously the glamour of formula one and yeah. all that would entail yeah but yeah there's there's clearly a, an awful lot more to motorsport than just what we might see on a on a screen on a saturday or sunday afternoon on the bbc or whatever it might be so you, in terms mm. of the business of sport and making that happen how much of a learn of a steep learning curve was that for you? <laughs> Crikey, yes. Well, if you just look at it from sheer basics, I had a friend who, who wanted to be a, a tennis professional and, and it ended up being a tennis professional, and another who was who um, played golf. Um, they only had to buy a golf bag and, and some clubs or a tennis racket and some shoes. Sure, there are some other costs, but you compare that to a racing car. You can immediately see the difference between I've got to buy a racing car, you've got to buy a tennis racket or two. There is a huge amount of investment. And and that's the thing, is, is that that's where the business comes in. Is Back in the day, we had a wonderful phrase, and it's so true. You can only go as fast as you can afford. And that's what it's about. So you ha- if you want to go quickly, if you want to, to work your way up the ladder in motorsport, you need to have the money to, to pay for it. Because there are teams of people, uh, mechanics, etc. Unless they're your friends, they're not going to turn up for for an entire weekend and and service the car and 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 service you without getting some sort of reward. And obviously, the cost of fuel, tires, brakes, etc., etc., entry fees, it all adds up. And that's why why it is very much a, a business. And it and it from a very low level you have to pay and i th- i think back in so we're talk we're talking what 25 years ago when i first started my first year budget was was 50,000 pounds wow which if you think about it back yeah that's a, a lot of money to find and and creating the business case around that for those that perhaps are less familiar with mm. with motorsport the return on investment for a you know for for, for stakeholders how you create that I would imagine you have to get very creative around presenting the business case uh, and selling yep. your proposition respectfully at a very early age you have to get really clear on what that is um, in order that you can even get to the start line let alone compete in the race well that's the thing is, is you have to persuade people that uh, that them investing money in your in your career it has to be a long-term investment um, very few I, I did have a, a few sponsors who were benevolent who would pay for a race here and there for for no reward so so no acknowledgement they didn't want anything on on the, on the car or anything which was fantastic and and I applaud them and have uh, they've always had a very special place in, in in my heart if you like and my respect for doing that and and I will be eternally grateful for that but from a company point of view, if you're going to a company, yes, you have to, to create something that is going to give them a return. Nobody is ever going to give you a pile of cash to put their name on the side of the car to watch you go round and round in circles. There has to be something. There has to be a commercial value to it. And nowadays, they have to justify it to the taxman as well. They can't just write you a check 
to put put their their name on the side of the car, there has to be justification for it for mm. for tax reasons. So it has it has got much much harder. The the good thing nowadays is that we have much better television coverage, especially in the junior formerly. We have a lot more social media. We have a lot more technology. So so you can promote yourself without the need of being on a television screen. You can promote yourself so that sponsors get the return that that they that they need. And you, and you can you can make it into a, a good commercial proposition. See. What do you think you've that, that uh, well twenty five years now as a as a driving mm. professional, if I can put it in those terms, mm. whether it be racing or doing other things around it? Yeah. What do you think that experience has equipped you with? Without using too many cliches, I think it has certainly taught me how to think outside the box. Very much so. I don't think I've <laughs> I've done anything that's conformed to to any straight line or, or, or pile of boxes. Um, and I think that's been a really good thing because I certainly wouldn't have come up with driver's tipple. If, 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 I, if I'd sat down with a spreadsheet or a piece of paper and looked at the costs and, and the investment of time, et cetera, on something like driver's tipple, you would never in your right mind enter into that, that as, a, as a project. But you do something because you believe it's right and you you know that you can you can conquer it and it's it's pretty much the same that if you're driving you might see a gap on someone who's in front of you and if you spent too much time measuring everything and calculating you probably would never make the move but sometimes you have to take that leap of faith and believe in yourself and believe in what you you're capable of doing and and then you make you make that maneuver and i think that's what it's taught me is don't overthink what you're doing don't overthink it. I know a lot of people in business would probably be burying their heads in their hands at this point. There is a time and a place, obviously, to put right strategies, etc. But I think sometimes you just have to roll your sleeves up and go for it. And in terms of the highs as a, as a racing driver, are there any particular moments that really stand out for you? Sure. I mean, winning winning races or being on 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 the podium. Um, I think think being on the podium uh, with uh, my oldest friend, uh, who's no longer with us, and teammate Neil Cunningham, we we came third in, in an international race in Valencia back in two thousand and eight, and I think things like that 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 really sort of stick out. It was just because we worked so hard to to get to that race, and we had some some fantastic sponsors, and it was a really last minute event. And and we had no practice, no setup. We just went out and we did it. I think th- that was probably one of my greatest greatest memories from from racing that I certainly enjoyed because I could share it with with someone. But I've been very lucky. I've I've got to drive all sorts of things in my life. I sure didn't make it to Formula One, or uh, although that was never really my goal. And uh, I've, I've just had a really good time, and I've got to to meet some amazing people. I think that's what I take away from it the the most. So I've got to work with some of the most amazing people and and meet people from all sorts of walks of life. And that's what's been been so good. And so before we come on to Driver's Tipple, mm. you've had other, obviously other, say obviously, but you've had other business experiences as well, not sure. only in, in Formula One, but other ventures that you've gotten involved with. So tell, tell me about some of the other things that you've gotten involved with from a business point of view. I, back in the early 2000s, I, I came up with an idea for a, uh, internet it's an inter early sort of internet startup uh, which i was in very very short period of time and then moved on from that into sort of a cloud computing 
business, which I came up with a concept, which worked, we worked with some of the large, largest organizations in the, in the world. Both those came from tiny little ideas. The, the cloud computing idea was, was literally, I was on a, on a car rally to France, the Beaujolais run, and we were standing in the, uh, in the Eurotunnel and uh which is like going under under the under the water and i was talking to someone that i knew who worked in uh it and he said he was working on servers and etc cetera, etc cetera. and i said have you ever thought about this as a concept and it was basically cloud computing and he stared at me and, and said that's such a simple idea why have we not done that and so when we got to the other side he phoned his boss and we had a meeting within a week and we went and sat down and that's how that so all these ideas all these businesses have all come out of a little nugget of just you know, why don't we just try why don't we just try that which is exactly you know, where we are where we are now do you think that's how much of that is because of the to your point earlier the people that you've met along the way from that the network that you will have enjoyed through racing, you meet people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, all think, all, you know, all profiles and thought processes. I would imagine, yeah. and that those conversations spark initiative, idea, thoughts that of themselves then you know, plant a seed, ultimately from which springs a business. Yes, it certainly opens opens doors and a network. I used to have a manager when I was racing at the end of my racing career whose nickname for me was Captain Network. It was hilarious. I mean, it's just a little jibe. But it's very important that you know you get to meet all these people, uh, but you can learn from them. And I'm not saying you're, you're taking from them at, at all, but I, I used to love having conversations with some of the people we, that you'd meet. And, and a lot of them were very, very successful and, and, and high in, the, in whatever industry they were, they were in. Um, and I used to find it fascinating to to talk to them and see their viewpoint. Um, but it's it's interesting you made you made a point there which which sparked an, an idea. The thing with motorsport is that, and and the thing about sponsorship is when you get so immersed in it, you spend your entire life when you're walking around driving down the motor. I spend used to spend hour upon hour driving on motorways, and I'd drive past lorries with a brand on the side of it and think, hmm. How would that tie in with my my motor racing? How would that tie in with one of my sponsors? To give you an example, I came up with an idea of creating a, a triangular deal for sponsorship. And I met a lovely gentleman who ran a water company, bottled water. Um, and he said to me, he said, if you can come up with an idea that would generate sales for us, we will give you the profit from the sales. Okay, fine. So I went to a, a very well-known cruise liner company and said, look, if I could find you premium blue chip water to go on your ships for your, for your customers, for your passengers, at a cheaper price than you're paying at the moment and give you sponsorship on, on our race car and, and do some promotions, et cetera, et cetera, would you be interested and they said, well, we'd be stupid not to, to at least explore that. And that's exactly what we did. So I managed to get this water company into one of the largest cruise ship companies in the world, got their product in there within a couple of weeks or so. They both got sponsorship on the race car and I ended up with a net sponsorship deal. So that's how it worked. So I would spend my entire life walking around, talking to people, 
driving around, looking at brands. So that's, I think, where your brain gets trained to constantly just have a like a third ear listening out for opportunities. And I think, and if you're a, a, a true businessman and a true entrepreneur, you do, you have that. I think that anybody listening to this who runs their own business will know exactly what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. You're you're always looking, I wouldn't say looking for an angle, but you're always receptive to, hang on, that could be quite a good idea. And so tell us, what was the the inspiration behind the driver's tipple? Cool, that's a good question. Back in 2016, I um on a personal level, I was I was going through a bit of a dark time, a bit of a dark place. And um and I was chatting to my my greatest mate, like my closest friend, who reminded me that that when I first started racing Formula Ford um, as, a, as a youngster, I had a bet with my main sponsor, who was one of the benevolent sponsors that I told you about. He bet me that I couldn't stop drinking for a year. Now I wasn't, I didn't drink a lot, but I think um, we'd had Sunday lunch, and his wife and I had shared a bottle of wine, and we were a little bit tipsy. And he's, well, you, know, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, you should be ultra fit and a racing driver and i said well i could i could just not drink i can leave it so he bet me he said right stop drinking for a year and i did it and it was the best year i ever had i was fitter healthier you know i never had any mood swings or or anything like that and i thoroughly enjoyed myself and in 2016 my dear friend christian said to me look why don't you just stop drinking for a bit do you remember how you were then and I said, mm, yeah, that's a good idea. So I just stopped drinking for a bit. And it wasn't, I didn't say, that's it, I've stopped drinking. Or I'm going to give up drinking for January. Or I'm going to give up drinking for six months. I just stopped drinking. And one month turned into two, into three, four, et cetera, et cetera. And I finally got to a point, I, after about eight months, there's just so much orange juice and lemonade and lime and soda that one can drink. And I went to a party and a, a friend of mine who's, who's a surgeon came up to me with a silver salver and, and a gin glass on it and said, look, this is for you. And I said to, to Heidi, I said, look, I can't drink that. It's gin, gin and tonic. And she just smiled and said, look, it's for you. You can drink it. And I said, I'm fine. So I tried it. And sure enough, it tasted like gin and tonic. It was okay. It wasn't brilliant, but it was, it was there. And she showed me what it was, and it was a pre-mixed product. It was lots and lots of chemicals in it. And I thought, okay, that's a good attempt, but it's just a, another chemicals in, in liquid. And it took me a, a, about two or three weeks, and I thought about it, and I tried some other uh, products that were out there, and just nothing really grabbed me. And I'd had lots of non-alcoholic beers, et cetera, which were, which were fine. And uh, it was a Tuesday morning and it was quarter past three in the morning. And I remember it was vividly, I sat bolt upright in bed after being asleep and thought, I know what I've got to do. I've got to explore how, or the feasibility of doing a non-alcoholic gin. So that's where it came from. And uh, the, the rest, the rest is history. So where do you even start on that journey? What, of, of creating the product? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's such a good question. I was, I was very, for, it's again, it's going back to contacts. You know, uh, my sister is very much into horses and, and a lady that she rides horses with in, in the, their group is married to a gentleman that owns a very well-known distillery. So I, I begged her favor and said, can I give your husband a call? And she said, yes, sure. So I phoned him and he said, um, look, this is a really good idea. You are right on the cusp of the wave. 
So get on with it and do it. He he couldn't help me. It wasn't something that they could physically do, but he did introduce me to to people that that could get it going. And he did he did warn me. He said, "Look, this is going to cost you an arm and a leg to get it done. It's going to take a lot of time, but it's definitely worth it." And, that, and I think that was that was the most valuable conversation because I'd spoken to. I kept it very 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 secret, very quiet. I had literally some close confidence. I said. What do you think of this as an idea? But this was the first time I spoke to someone who actually knew what they were talking about, who said, look, go for it. You should, you should definitely do that. So I would be eternally grateful to him. And we, we, we are still obviously in contact and, uh, and very much he's still very supportive, which is, which is lovely. And, and so then what's the, I guess, what's the process from there for somebody who's never, you know, I, I, it's fair to say I might have mixed one or two gin and tonics in my life, but I've certainly never gotten to a point where I've produced a drink and made made a drink. I've no understanding as to what the journey is from kind of concept to to glass, if you like. What's the mm. what's the journey? Where do you start? <laughs> have okay. you had those conversations? No, but even even in terms of ingredients and all those sorts of things, sure. what's the process? Sure, I think. I mean, I sat down with with the distillery and and they have people in white coats who are far more intelligent and far cleverer than I am but they said what do you did you like when when you were drinking because the the gin and tonic was the was the drink that I that I, that I missed and so I, I came up with a number of brands and said look I, I liked that taste profile I didn't like that and they said well okay well let's start with that and see if we can replicate what you what you remember I mean bearing in mind that I hadn't had a gin and tonic for over a year once this process started so it was it was trying to reenact that memory and getting that that taste profile that i was trying to to remember and that was difficult that was that was very difficult but and that's where a lot of the time went trying trying to get that flavor profile and it's and it took us a number of years to get that and and in terms of so and is that the the direction of travel if you like you go kind of product first and then you start to look at brand and you start to look at all those sorts of initiatives or did you have a sort of concept in your own mind of how this was going to look from the get-go and you kind of work towards that it all dovetailed in together i was very much bullied into into turning it around very we we turned it around very very quickly when the first product came out i, I had an idea for the brand for the driver's tipple, so I trademarked that, and I and I didn't tell anybody, literally anybody, what the brand was going to be until I got the paperwork through from the IPO to say, right, this is yours. But I I knew what I wanted to achieve with the looks of the of the bottles, for instance. I knew I wanted to have something different, something quirky, something that would portray my sense of humour. You know, I, I, I looked at must be over over at least 250 bottles of alcoholic gin. Um, I had them all sort of lined up. And the one thing that said to me, or the thought that went through my head was that I thought that it was all a little bit boring. And I, want, and I thought that if I'm coming out with something that's non-alcoholic that people would think would be boring, I need to have something that's funny, exciting, is going to draw someone's attention in. Does that make, make sense? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And there's some some beautiful bottles designed out there. So don't get me wrong, there, there really are some fantastic designs. But I wanted to have something that that people would look on the shelf or look on the bar and go, what on earth is that? 
And that's where we came up with with the characters and you know was so blessed to have Bryn Parry do the characters for us. And and it very much dovetailed in with the develop research and development that was going on with the product. So whilst the the clever people in the lab were were doing the prototype product, I was working very closely with people like Bryn and and Dan, who's our label designer, to to create the brand. So it very much dovetailed together. For those that don't know, this is Bryn Parry, who was, amongst other things, the founder of Help for Heroes. Yes. He's a... Also, as I think you say, he's an illustrator or cartoonist. Correct, and sculptor. Sculptor and all sorts of things. So... You know, for those of for those that are listening, I have the benefit of being able to see the brand in front of me, and it's a fabulous. Uh, it evokes really kind of to your point, kind of humorous and yeah. and fun, but cool bit retro element to it. Yeah. Did you sort of go through several iterations with Bryn? Did you did you describe to him what it was that you were trying to portray, and then he just grasped the concept straight away? Because I think there's a lot of very talented creatives like that. Yeah. Are able to put either in words or in pictures or whatever it may be, they're able to articulate your vision in a very sim- a very effective way. Was that the experience of working with, with, with Bryn? If Bryn is listening to this, he will probably be swearing right now. <laughs> we, we have, just so your listeners know, we have two characters. So we have a, a gentleman driver, Miles, and we have a lady driver who we call Ophelia. Miles was, was relatively straightforward because, because I wanted, I knew what I wanted, a cross between a, a Terry Thomas dick dastardly uh, sort of character and and the one person that I thought that I very much admired as well as the drivers I mentioned before was Graham Hill I really liked Graham Hill and and I found a, a photograph of Graham Hill sat in the car and if I could show it to you and, and line it up next to the label they're very very close well as soon as you as soon as you mentioned Graham Hill actually I, I I've got an iconic image of him in my mind mm. you know like on my iconic figure of British motorsport yeah, absolutely. world motorsport yeah uh, but yeah to your point I can absolutely see how that would have you know it certainly certainly comes across from what you've described yeah so when I told Bryn about that you know he said he said right send me some some pictures and we, we discussed it and he went right got it know exactly what you want and I think miles took Bryn a couple of days it certainly wasn't very, very long. Ophelia, on the other hand, was a bit of a nightmare. Um, she took six, seven, maybe even eight weeks to do because getting the elegance of, uh, you know, she's a, she's a cross between sort of Grace Kelly. So Audrey Hepburn and was, the, uh, yes, was Audrey, the name that sprung to mind yeah, as soon as I saw the picture. That's what it is. You're absolutely right. So it's Audrey Hepburn and Grace Kelly were the two main inspirations for her. But getting a lady slightly different because I didn't want didn't want her to look too aggressive. I didn't want her to look too sexy. You know, I, d- I didn't want to be demeaning at all. It was it was just trying to get the right elegance. But when you're trying to be slightly comedic as well, very very different very very difficult so if i tell you that um, and Bryn bless him he, he, he wouldn't normally do this but he gave me the mock-ups that that he did so all, all the iterations that he went through for miles there are literally three or four literally for ophelia gosh there must be 25 at least and it's really interesting to look at the journey and, and one day i will put them into a into a big frame so that we can we can display it, but she was so much more difficult. But she came out right. She came out right, and that's the main thing. So it wasn't an easy 
and, and a lovely story behind the names Miles and Ophelia as well. I think you uh, yes, you they mention. they are uh, named after my my gorgeous niece and nephew. So um, who must be delighted to know that they're. Uh, I think they're teenagers. They don't really know. <laughs> they do. They do. They, when, when I told them, they were a bit young at the time, and they went, oh, "Right," but but yes, I, I, I know they did. They did appreciate it, and they do think it's a bit cool. So maybe something of a naive question, but in terms of you, how you make a non-alcoholic gin? Is right. this back to uh, smart people in white coats again in labs? I, I was always. It was intriguing me. I was trying to work it. I don't know. So I'm, mm. I'm mentally going through this process. So do you make gin and then take the alcohol out? That seems like a very naive perspective, but it's always trying to understand how do you, how do you create a non-alcoholic drink, a non-alcoholic gin? Right. Well, I could tell you, but obviously then I'd have to. Uh, of course. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, no. Um, what I can, no, we don't make a gin and take the alcohol out. Everybody asks me that, but no, we don't. We do distill the product. It is fully distilled as a, a, a alcoholic gin, so it's properly distilled. A lot of products that are out there have just got flavors, uh, oils, um, and essences added to, to water, but we fully distill it. So the, what's what's done is the juniper is treated with with some alcohol, a very small amount, and then that is added to the botanicals that we have in. The, in the product that's all macerated together um so the the amount of alcohol now is is absolutely minimal then that is distilled with with water so it's completely diluted virtually out so it's, it's really trace which is why it's non-alcoholic and not completely alcohol free so that's pretty much the the process I mean, there are some some little secret bits in the middle which which I can't share, but but that's that's basically how it's made. So it is a fully distilled product, and it it takes a lot. I get asked quite quite a lot about value and and why the product costs what it costs. It takes an awful lot longer to make than a traditional alcoholic gin. It also has, I think, the statistic is nine times the the amount of botanicals in it that that you would need for a, an alcoholic gin. So there's an awful lot that goes more that goes into it bizarrely than you'd get in an alcoholic gin. And to your point around your friend with the distillery who mm. said, absolutely, this is the right time. Mm. It, it just strikes me that, I mean, I wouldn't understand the statistics around it, but intuitively there's been a bit of a sort of a gin resurgence, mm. which then compounded with almost a, I don't know. I, revolution doesn't seem like the right word. It seems like too strong a word. But my intuitive sense is a greater awareness around alcohol, mm. the effects of alcohol, yeah. not drinking. You know, yeah. and, and and people, um, you know, there's far greater range, you know, available to us these days when you walk into a pub and you don't want it. You're the driver. Mm. To your point around orange juice and lime and soda, mm. you can enjoy a nice drink without having to have alcohol these there seems to be a bit more of of an awareness around it and an acceptance of it and i may mm. be wrong that's just going on an intuitive sense of what i see but those two things combined it strikes me that you were at the point at which you were you know to your your friend's point this is the right time that yeah. you kind of you're onto something was there a point at which you thought you know that sort of pivotal moment when you thought i think we might be able to make this work because I, I, inevitably with any business, you, you ride the crest of a wave, don't you? There are highs yeah. and lows. Yeah. Was there a point you thought, actually, do you know what? This could, this could work. We're onto something. 
I, I think it was that it was that conversation and seeing there was there was two other products out at the time in the marketplace as as I was creating Tipple. I think that talking about what you're saying about people being more aware about what they're drinking and the resurgence of the, the the gin revival, I think that people's palates have changed over the last certainly ten, maybe twenty years. I think people have been a lot more interested in cooking and creating meals and 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 playing with flavors and that has transferred i mean look at how many cookery programs we have on on television and have had that has transferred across in now into drinks i think a lot of people that i talk to will will come up to me and say i will put rosemary in it or i'll put some some black currant or i'll, I'll do some some rhubarb or some ginger they, they will always come up with something this is what i like to to try with it which is fascinating 15 20 years ago people would have just had it straight out as it was supposed to have done people are experimenting with their own taste they're exploring what they do and don't don't like and in a more natural way it strikes and, me as yes, well absolutely. With, with absolutely a sense yeah. around returning to you know stuff we've grown in our own gardens or whatever it might yeah. be but yeah more yeah. of that sort of natural sense of becoming much more aware mm. of what it is that we're putting into our bodies yeah but now we have going back to your point is that alcohol was always is is the perfect carrier for flavors for a drink uh, it gets so out of a botanicals from a spirit point of view. It's the perfect carrier for those flavors. We now have, and although we're still developing it, the technology to not necessarily have that al- alcohol in there. There are other ways of doing it, and I th- and I think that people are now saying, "I want to be fit. I want to be healthy, and I don't have to drink to." have a great social life i don't need to drink to express myself and it's really interesting how that dynamic is changing and and i'm absolutely amazed when i when i first started researching this how many people don't drink but they don't admit it either they won't wave the flag because you and i probably both have had heard people say well my mother said never trust someone who doesn't drink I mean, what a most ridiculous mantra to follow. But I think that has definitely, definitely played played a part. I have met so many people who said, well, actually, no, I don't I don't really drink. I might have a drink socially, a glass of wine with a with a dinner or that I'm attending, but that is it. The rest of the week I you know, the rest of the time I, I don't drink. And it's a lot more people than you think. And it's growing and it's growing because people's lifestyles have changed so much. I think as a nation, we're a lot more active. I lived in Australia for, for a year and a half. And I was amazed at how much more active people were there. Obviously, they have the climate and they have the facilities to do that. But I see a lot more of that now here back here in the UK, where people are going out and doing much more physical and active activities do you think that anecdotally covid has accelerated that if only because i if i look at you know as a consequence maybe perhaps of people working from home i've certainly seen well you do see more people out for a run out for a walk Mm. out riding a bike you know Mm. out enjoying the fresh air do you think we've become has covid and the the talk around our health and well-being accelerated that relationship we have with activity and made us more aware because you, you sort of see you see two 
two sort of uh, schools of thought coming through much of the media, which is that on the one hand, there've been too many people kind of sat at home on the couch, mm. not moving and eating badly through mm. COVID. Mm. And then you see other people who've said, you know, I've never run as much. I've never run my, ride my bike. Or I go for a walk every morning, whatever it might be. There's, yeah. There seems to be a bit of a, a almost a bit of a split. And that, But I, have you seen that, that move towards opening up our palates, opening up our awareness around health and well-being, fitness, all sorts of things accelerated as a consequence of COVID perhaps? Massively, massively. Uh, through COVID, uh, I think the first, you split COVID up into, into two, two areas. The first lockdown, uh, everybody was forced to stay at home. And I think there was a lot of people, I'm probably guilty of it as well, that that watched far too much television and felt that we we had to be cocooned for that period. And then when that's relaxed a bit, uh, I certainly became a, a lot more conscious of, of I, I didn't want to be sat in front of a television. I, I wanted to be out, out and about. I'm, I'm very lucky I live in the countryside, so you, we can go for a walk uh, or go for a run or go for a bike ride, et cetera, et cetera. But even those were very much uh, curtailed. You weren't, weren't allowed to do so much. And I think that that when you get thrown into that very negative regime, albeit for the, the greater good, if you want, you suddenly realize what you're missing out on. You know, you're missing out going kayaking, you're missing out going rock climbing or, or just going to the beach or just going, going and playing golf, going, playing, ten, whatever, whatever floats your boat, whatever you like doing. And I think I've definitely seen people making some really profound life choices, both with their downtime their, their their leisure time but also with their their work as well you know we've all heard about working from home and and the way people are, are structuring their lives and and where they're choosing to live so i think that that yes you're absolutely right covid has put a cat amongst the pigeons and and shaken people out of the lethargy and the structure that they were all sticking to they were kind of going through the motions i think now everybody's realized actually i can do something different you look at how many businesses have come out of COVID, you know, whether whether people are knitting things, sewing things, making things, or getting something made in another country and having them shipped in. People have, have started to think outside the box and creating things for themselves and, and not just accepting the status quo. And I think that is so exciting. It's almost like a another industrial revolution. Do you think the relationship we have with alcohol mm. as a nation is an interesting one to debate as well around the, that, that it's arguably become, to your point now, you know, you mentioned people who would say, oh no, I don't, I don't really drink, but mm. to your point, we don't, we don't really announce it. There's a lot of societal pressure, or there certainly was, I think if I go back to me as a teenager, you know, kind of going into the pub and ordering your first pint was just something you did it was like a yeah. rights of passage and a badge of honor yeah i look at i've got two i've got a 17 and a 19 year old they have nowhere near the same interest or it, arguably their lives are far you know are far more interesting in many ways they've got the, the world has become a smaller place they've got wonderful opportunities available to them my my horizon was kind of you know 16 17 the pub at the end of the road i could get in there i could get served and the way you go we have a you know, if you look at perhaps some of the arguments around maybe the Mediterranean relationship with alcohol or the French relationship with alcohol, where you have wine with a meal, it's just something to be enjoyed rather than to mm. go and getting smashed with or whatever it might be. These are all very broad, sweeping statements, but nonetheless, do yeah, we sure. do we do you think the relationship we have with alcohol 
in the UK is, is maturing and changing for the better? I think I, d- I definitely think so. Um, well, the debate around drinking generally is becoming more open and people are more accepting. You know, it's no longer, there isn't, in my view, rightly or wrongly, the same social stigma mm. attached to walking in a pub and ordering a 0% beer or whatever it may be now, as there would have been even 10 years ago. I think that quite seriously, uh, I remember 20 years ago, might, might have been a little bit more longer, having a conversation with a chef that I knew. And we were talking about, my, my mother was was vegetarian when I was growing up, uh, although we, we weren't a vegetarian family, but my mother for various reasons, decided that she wanted to be vegetarian. And I remember talking to him and he, and he was saying, never will I ever have a vegetarian course on my any menu that I'm cooking. So uh, in my pub or in my hotel or whatever. Now, how ridiculous would that be as a statement today? And I think it's the same. I've, I've had this conversation with various people in the industry, whether it be landlords of pubs or owners of hotels, et cetera, who say, well, none of my customers would want a non-alcoholic gin or non-alcoholic spirit. And then when you actually rattle off a few, they go, oh, I hadn't thought of that. So there is this, I think it's losing its stigma. Drink is very much following food. People experiment, have been experimenting with food for a long time. They're now starting to do it with, with drink. And I think you're right that... That as a nation, right? I have a number of friends in in France, for instance, good wine producing country, and and they've always remarked you know, the British drink like it's a competitive sport. If it was the, in the Olympics, you would have every gold medal, and and that used to make me smile. But it's so true. We do. It's it's almost we're on a self destruct. We have to drink and until we reach oblivion, which is very sad really, because you see people with a very nice bottle of wine and I've, and I've seen it myself and it's fascinating to watch. You see someone buy a very expensive bottle of wine and they drink it like a, a five pound bottle of plonk. And you think that hasn't even touched the sides. What was the point of buying something so exquisite? You know, you may as well just buy a print from the, the local post office and put it on your wall as opposed to a, a Picasso or a, or a Rubens. It's it's the same thing, and i i don't I don't know what caused that. I don't know why that happened, but we do definitely seem to to drink ourselves to a to a point of of self destruction. That, however, is changing massively, and it's it's interesting when you talk to people in in the drinks industry, you're seeing what is declining and what is in, increasing. And I think people are, are are getting more sophisticated in their choices, but but also in the quantity that they're drinking. You're always going to have some people that that, are, if in doubt, flat out, yeah. absolutely fine. You know, and we've you and I have probably both been there yes. as as well. But I think yes, definitely, as a dynamic of our society, it's definitely definitely changing. What, what have you you made? You mentioned earlier about even when when you were talking about racing drive, but you brought that into the drivers too about the importance of doing things you you love. Mm. What have you enjoyed about the driver's tipple experience? Having having something at home that I have an endless supply of that I can drink every no. I think do you know one of the most exciting things and and most vivid memories I have is we when we launched, we launched back in 2018 at, at Blenheim Palace at an event called Salon Privé, 
which is uh, the most fantastic car concourse event. And I remember we had a, had a, a, a stand there where people could come and try driver's tip and, and could buy a bottle if they so wished. And I can't, I can't put into words really, but the feeling I had when I saw the first customer walk away with a bag with two bottles of driver's tipple, looking pleased as punch that he had made this purchase and, and walking away. I think that that made it all worthwhile. And when when I have people email me or contact me and, and I've, I've had people come up to me in, in the streets, a lady came up to me in the street in Oxfordshire and said, are you the tipple man? Which which was lovely. And she said, oh, do you know what? I absolutely love it. And I, I have people that that email me quite regularly. I had a, a lady last week whose daughter has just become pregnant. And she said, I would like to order a few cases for my daughter. She, she used to love gin. You are my new best friend. You know, Thank you ever so much. Things like that. I, th- I think the fact that we are... We've created a product that people enjoy, that there's that affects people's lives in, in a very positive way. Not, not nothing grandiose, but something that's just that people can enjoy and, and, and affect just a moment of happiness in, in people's lives. That's that's what really stands out for me. That's what makes it all worthwhile. How, how does that compare to a podium finish? Podium finish is very much a more selfish thing. You know, I did that. I just beat all all of you and the team as well. It's, you know, not just me, but the team. It's a different, yeah. It's a very different emotion. I think I see Tipple as as its own being, if if you like, and and I'm I'm just looking after it. Uh, you know, I'm just its guardian, if if you like. So it's a completely different win in inverted commas. You know, if you're standing on the, on the podium, it's it's something. Very, it's very short term as well because you've you've done it. It's finished. Whereas the thing with Tipple is, it's, it's constantly evolving, and there's it's constant people being positive or negative. You know, it's a proper relationship, mm. and I think that's that's what makes it so much more fulfilling. So it's longer, longer lasting. So if you if you look back over the last well three years, three years since launch, mm, yeah, um, but. I guess five years in the making, if you like, if you took that moment in yeah. three AM moment, with the benefit of hindsight, what might you do differently? Would you do anything differently? Do you know what I? I, I haven't stopped long enough to think about that. Genuinely, I'm sure there'd, there'd probably be some very, very boring things that that I might might change. But I think that's all part of the journey. If I'd structured it more, it would have been very dull. And very boring and it wouldn't have the emotion there's lots of stories around driver's tipple about how things have evolved and the reason why things have been the way they are there's there's lots and lots of stories to tell and for me that's what's so special about it commercially yes there have been some faux pas and and yes you'd always you'd always want to avoid those but but then do you because then you don't learn yeah and uh, I think that's true. Business is never a straight line to no. success, is it? You know, and I think there isn't, there isn't a successful business person alive who not at some no. point has had some pain. No, exactly. Yeah. And, and I, and I think that you don't value it. You, you don't, you don't get as much out of it if you, if you haven't had any pain, if, if it's just been landed on a plate for you, I don't think you appreciate it. 
I genuinely believe that, having d- done various things you know, in my life. And Tipple has been far from easy. I wouldn't have said it was the most difficult thing I've ever done, but it's been far from easy. And is there anything I would have changed? Not really. Not in the structure of, of the way it's happened. Uh, I think I think it could have happened faster, but then you make more mistakes if you rush things and and it's and it would have taken on a completely different dynamic it's this is not just a straight commercial business mm. and i think that's where its strength is some people might argue against my bank manager might argue against me um although he does get it it's it's quite interesting you know and we have had that conversation where he's you know, we've sat down with a, a spreadsheet and he says there's some very interesting decisions but I understand why you're sticking to your guns and you're doing it that way. Mm. And been, so far been proved right. But, um, but yeah, there's nothing, I, I don't think there's anything I'd change. And, and in terms of what the future might look like, for the, is there an option? Because I'm really, I'm no expert on these things, but I've just struck by the brand. It looks really, it, and the story behind it, I think mm. you, you tell a very compelling story around how it's evolved, how it's unraveled. And, and so therefore, what does the future look like for Drivers Tipple? Is there, do you move into other, are there other products, other other lines? Do you, you know, stick to the knitting and or stick to the yeah. juniper? And, yeah. you know, and, and just, what does the future hold for the for the brand? Uh, we, I have got some some ideas for, for some other products, but I had someone turn around to me uh, recently who said, I'm really pleased the fact that you, you don't have lots of different flavours. And and I said why, and she said because it makes them so complicated. And this is a a lady who's a professional mixologist, as they like to be called. And she said, I totally understand what your product is, and I think that it's very very tempting to constantly bring out new variations of of your product, you know, with a different flavour, because that's that's what a lot of distilleries have had to do with the basic gin. But with the non-alcoholic market, I think it's concentrate on on what you're doing and get it right. And there are lots of people who, who want to have different flavors. But my belief is give our customers the the core product and let them play with it themselves. If they want to put rosemary in it, that's fine. If they want to put lime in it, grapefruit, lemon, who knows? If that's what they want to do, then that's that's fine. I'm not going to give them all sorts of different flavors. There are things that we are going to play with and maybe some other non-alcoholic spirits that we are working on. and, uh, and ways. it lends itself as a name, it lends itself to that, I think. Well, yes, that was, that was one of the reasons why, why I chose that, was that, that it was something that could open up into, into various different, different products. But, but I, want, I want to keep it simple. I want people to, uh, to understand what, what driver's tipple is. You, know, you, you look at some of the greatest brands out there so for instance uh, marmite uh, or liam perrin's worcester sauce they haven't really moved away from their that core products and everybody understands exactly what it what it is and that's that's what i want i want, I want to do one thing and do it well mm. and and i think that's important there will be other little bits and pieces on the side but but that's that is at the moment the roadmap well i think all this talk of the driver's tipple and all that it would entail mm. leads us naturally to want to try and Try some whilst we're here. I think it'd be rude um, not to. I think it would be rude not to. I'm, t- I'm, I'm salivating at the prospect. <laughs> so let's crack open a bottle okay. um, and see where we go. I might have one here. 
So, uh, listeners, for those of you clearly not uh, able to enjoy the benefits of uh, that I am able to see with a bottle in front of me, uh, I'll uh, a little sound accompaniment to our taster will go with the uh, the uh, the fizz of the tonic, uh, which uh, is now we're now going to add to the delightful driver's tipple. You can hear that sounds great already. Um, here goes. So, taste it first. Taste. Wow. That's uh, well. That certainly gets my vote. That's um. What do you what what hits you first? Um. Well, my first thought is that's a gin and tonic. Interesting, <laughs> isn't it? That's exactly my first thought. Yeah. Um, that's a gin and tonic in all that that would entail. It's got that kind of freshness to it and that crispness to mm. it, and you can taste the that sort of junipery gin taste is very vivid. Yep. That tastes like a gin and tonic. I wouldn't know. Good. I don't. I'm, I know. I wouldn't necessarily lay claim to having the most sophisticated palate, but nonetheless, that's um, for the ill-educated, and I include myself chief amongst them. <laughs> that's that's a very, very refreshing, crisp, light taste. Good. That tastes good. It tastes great. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. So um, in terms of where uh, I've questions, other questions to explore. Sure. Certainly, Hamish, I'd love to explore. But in terms of just, and we'll come back to this at the end, in terms of where people can find the driver's tipple, I think importantly, for those of you that want to experience the taste that I'm currently experiencing, which is genuinely delightful, where can they find you? How can they go about ordering? Where can they get product? Uh, at the moment, we we are in various shops where we are over 105 stores. Which in, includes, which I'm very proud of. You know, Blenheim Palace was our first shop, so there's shops like Delicatessens, pe- people like Blenheim Palace venues, great and fine food stores. We're also in in some of the co-op, uh, the mid counties co-op, but the high end stores. We've managed to make it into into Harrods, which I am extraordinarily proud of. That was that was a bit of a coup to say the least. But um, obviously, with the with lockdown, Amazon has been an absolute godsend for us. Uh, so listeners can can buy a bottle on, on Amazon and have it delivered for free. So so that's my advice is you can go onto our website, which is driverstipple.com, and you can there's a link there, or you can just go onto your own Amazon and uh, and find the driver's tipple through through that. Well we'll uh, we'll we'll attach those links to the show notes yeah. when we come to publish so that people can uh, can find you because as I say, I labor the point, but to my experience it's it's certainly worth an investment, that's for sure. Maybe maybe um, we'll give your your listeners a little bit of a, a deal. Should we do that? Fantastic. Great. That's, that? a, that's a terrific idea. All right, Thank well, you. Why yeah. we do that? We'll, we'll, do, we'll that. do that. Okay. Right. So we'll put a link on the end of your uh on the end of it and uh, we will uh, we'll definitely sort that out for you. Brilliant. Thank okay. you. So what no pun intended, but nonetheless, what <laughs> what drives you? Um oh that is that is a good question. I just I just like to in uh, to enjoy myself, um, but not in in a sort of narcissistic sort of way. I I face every day in the same way. I, I I get up. I'm very lucky with where I live, with uh, my other half and I, uh, in the Cotswolds, which is which is fantastic. And I just persevere to to achieve my goals, but in the right way. Does that make sense? I, yeah. You know, I, I I like to work hard. I I thoroughly enjoy working hard, actually, and that was one of the, the things that that was noticed in in the first, certainly the first lockdown, was that my frustration at not being able to work, and because I love it, I love being pushed, 
I'm I'm not very good at sitting still because I I just feel lazy and I, and many people might say yes, but you enjoy sitting down and watching a good old World War II film, which I do, which is fine, but I can't do it for very long, and and I certainly wasn't very good at uh, watching box sets when we were in lockdown. I did, that was just drive me mad. So what motivates me is just getting up there and and doing things, and that's why I have. Uh, a nice v- variety in my life. I have tipple, which is obviously my my main goal and my own my main driver. But I still love driving. I will go and do days with manufacturers. I'll do filming. I still teach uh, at Silverstone at the weekends on on the, on the odd day here and there, which I thoroughly enjoy. So I, I have a good mix, and I think that's very important. And what does success mean to you? Oh, that's so difficult. I was at Silverstone at the weekend and one of the young lads who's, who's working, he's, you know, he's going through the path and working his way up. He said, I think you're a successful businessman. And I said, well, thank you. But he, he said, you know, what makes you successful? And and I said, it's very difficult because different people judge success in so many in different ways, you know, whether it be um, a materialistic sort of financial way or just just doing what you enjoy doing and bit, and having that freedom to do and that's where i th- i see success for me is that i'm allowed to do and i can afford to do what i want to do whether it be go off and drive classic cars whether it go drive around a, a racetrack go skiing go for drinks with with people and and to share the tipple uh, journey i think that's success for me is is not having to to report into anyone other than myself. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. And having the choice of doing what I what what I want to do. And obviously, we we all have people that we that we report into eventually, and that we have to to obey. But but there's a little bit of rebellion in me that I I can actually do things in my own way and uh, in my time. And I, that's I think that's what's important to me. So who or what inspires you? I think I don't have any particular individual that inspires me. It's that's that question is is a bit like you know, who, who's your favorite band to me. And I I've always said I I don't I don't have a favorite band, but I have favorite pieces of music. And it's very very and I've, I I don't have a particular favorite actor but I like an actor in that film or I, I like that particular film. I, I have lots of people that I have, I have met over the years that have inspired me, who have impressed me maybe, and, and they've done little bits here and, and someone else has done something over there. And, and that's what I take a little piece from, from everyone. And it's not necessarily people who society would say are particularly successful. The, the nice thing about teaching with, with driving at the racetracks is you literally get to meet people from every walk of life. And when you're in a car and sometimes when you come into the pits, you, you have some time to talk to them on a very much a one-to-one level. And, and I find that fascinating. And I find that inspiring when, when people sort of come and share their ambitions and, and their loves and the reasons why they, they have to be with us in the car that day. And what's, their journey and i think that's what that's where my inspiration comes from is is so many people have so many different journeys and that's what i find really inspiring 
So away from work, one of the things that struck me when we were first talking was you made mention of driving around and the you know almost always thinking of angles or ideas mm. or concepts with brands on mm. lorries as to how that would relate to your sponsorship. And, mm. and and the thing that struck me as you were saying that is, so do you switch off? And if so, how do you switch off? I think if if you asked Samantha, my, my other half, the one thing I don't do is switch off. I'm really, really bad at that. And it's something that it's very difficult to get me to go on holiday I will thoroughly enjoy it. I go kicking and screaming, but once I'm on the the aeroplane or I'm I'm on a, on a ski slope or I'm I'm not I'm not very good at that. Yes, I'm not very good at at switching my brain off, and and I don't know why. I really don't know why, because I'm generally quite a calm individual, but but no, I my brain's always always whirring away, and and I people can be in conversation with me. And and it's, it probably is a fault and they will see that my eyes might wander off. My brain's thinking, I'm listening to what they're saying, but I'm on a complete different tangent. But it just doesn't stop. And and if I was to say, if you were to ask me what is my, my greatest fault, that is it. So what advice would you give 21-year-old Hamish Gordon? Um, go to university. <laughs> you should have gone to university. No, um, I think I would probably encourage myself at that age to believe in myself more i, th- I think I, I i despite doing various things i i wasn't actually that confident in my own abilities and and i think that that, that would be the only thing i say totally believe in yourself and go for it go for it more push harder i think that's that's probably i've only got to this position now because i've had the experience and sure I've fallen over a few times and grazed knees etc and I think most people in business would probably turn around to themselves when they were they were that young and say, Do you know what? Just just go for it. You've got you've got nothing to lose. No, I think that's very true. So remind us again, www.driverstipple.com dot com is that is where we can go to find some of this fabulous alternative to uh Thank you. To gin. Really appreciate your time this morning. Really appreciate My your pleasure. candor and insight. It's been great, very entertaining. I it's love speaking fun, with it? you. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> I've really enjoyed the tipple uh, and I'm looking forward to enjoying a few more. And uh, I wish you and all associated with the driver's tipple all the very best for the future and look forward to seeing you go from strength to strength. Thank you very much. Thanks, Cheers, Hamish. Thank Cheers. You. All the best to you. And you. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.